This morning I'm talking about salt and light. And strangely enough, I'll be using scripture Matthew 5, 13 to 16. If you've got a Bible there with you or a device, you can open it to that. Otherwise, uh, it'll be up on the screen behind me. But reading from the New Living Translation, Matthew 5.13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavour? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Let's pray before I begin. Lord, I thank you that your word is powerful. Your word changes lives. I thank you that at the end of this service, we're all actually going to walk out different because we've got a, a revelation of something new in our life through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to spoil the mood entirely and talk about something which some of you may hate, some of you may know nothing about, but I believe is very important to our everyday life, but also important to Jesus in terms of our behaviour as Christians who believe in the scriptures and who believe that we are called to be like Jesus. And the word I'm going to use, the term I'm going to use is algorithms. Who knows what an algorithm is? <laughs> Could I not have my notes steal my punchlines, please? <laughs> Who had no idea that that was what an algorithm was? Who cares even less? <laughs> now, of course, there are two definitions, one of which is slightly tongue-in-cheek. It's a joke to say it's a step-by-step. -step. No, it's a joke to say it's a word used by programmers when they don't want to explain what they've done, although I have met such people. Um, but it's, it is basically a step-by-step -step procedure for solving a problem. And uh, I've given you a simple one, which is actually biblical. This is uh, an algorithm for Philippians 4, chapter 6. We can have the next one now. Okay, Philippians 4, 6 says, of course, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. So you've got data to start with. Your data is there's a problem. So you have a decision to make. Is it your problem? If it's not your problem, then you don't worry about it. If it is your problem, you go to the next step, which is can you do something about it? If you can't, don't worry about it, because worrying isn't going to help the problem, so forget it. If you can do something about it, you don't have to worry, because you can do something about it. So the ultimate end of the exercise is don't worry. Just pray about everything, although I didn't put that on the slide. So that's actually a simple algorithm. Now, the interesting thing about algorithms is that they're used ever-increasingly to make decisions about the lives of people all over the world. Companies build and market algorithms and talk about how objective they are, claiming they remove human error and bias from complex decision-making. Now, hopefully you can already see a problem in that because of the word decision-making. They're relying on things like that to actually make decisions for our life. And so it, they claim that there's no human error and there's no bias when they make these things. But I want to show you how the design of an algorithm 
actually reflect the choices of its human designer, whether we want it to or not. Let's say I've developed a simple algorithm for cooking in the kitchen. And so imagine I'm cooking. Imagine hard. <laughs> you rude people. <laughs> and so I go to my kitchen pantry and I open it and in there I have my data, my ingredients. And so I can select from those ingredients the items to make a meal. Now already I'm going to bias the data because there are some ingredients in that cupboard that I am not going to use. And so I select the ones I want. And so I've actually selected my data. So I'm imposing my agenda. And the next thing, of course, is that I'm actually defining what success is. I'm in charge of success. How, what do I feel a success of me preparing a meal is? Well, I can tell you one is that there's probably more meat than vegetables in this meal. And I can tell for, for someone, like, someone like Ben, for instance, if I've made spaghetti bolognese, which is a, there's a fair chance of that happening, success for Ben is that there's cheese sauce with it. And for me as well, I might add. <laughs> and so I've used an algorithm, but I've added my biases to it. Now, if Vicky used the very same algorithm and cooked in the kitchen, I can tell you that A, the ingredients she used would be different, and B, her definition of success is different. There would be a heck of a lot more vegetables than meat. And there would be certainly no cheese sauce on the spaghetti bolognese. So we can see here with just a simple example that the whole idea of, of governing human behaviour with algorithms is a bit risky because the goal of it all is to replace subjective judgments by people with objective judgments by a computer. But as we can see, it doesn't always work out like that. So what does that have to do with salt and light? I'm glad you asked. Did anyone know? Oh, hang on. I haven't told you the good bit yet. So computer algorithms now shape our world in profound and mostly invisible ways. They predict things like if we'll be valuable customers, whether or not we're likely to repay a loan. They sort through resumes. Even your job application often gets out of the pile, because not, a, not because a person's looked at it, but because a machine has. They evaluate job performance. They determine the length of prison sentences. They monitor our health and they filter what we see on social media. Now the funny thing is most of these algorithms have been created with good intention. But the salt and light part of it comes particularly on that last item. Did you notice that the last item I mentioned was the fact that algorithms sort what we see on social media? Now who knows that social media has become an incredibly powerful tool. And we're talking about, let's make up a fictitious one, let's call it Facebook. Um, <laughs> Or okay, Twitter, perhaps. Um, Instagram. I'm sure nobody's ever thought of these names. And so let's say that what happens is that people's, what people see on social media is actually filtered by a machine designed by the people at Facebook. And strangely enough, Jesus had the same problem in his time. The social media might have been different. But while he was teaching his disciples about salt and light during his Sermon on the Mount, he actually had specific social problems in mind that actually needed 
his disciples to draw from one side light and the other side salt and actually bring them together. Notice he doesn't say you're light or salt. He says you're light and salt. Let me, let, let me give you a modern day example. Facebook has what's called an optimizer algorithm which tracks your social media usage, your friends and a number of other factors and puts them into a, a, a pr program that puts on your news feed the things it thinks you want to see. And you think, well, that's convenient. Very good. But you need to ask yourself, what is Facebook's interest in providing you with this convenience? Are they interested in educating you? Are they interested in the truth of the news that you see? Are they concerned with the ethics of what they put into your feed? No. Facebook put an algorithm in your feed for one reason and one reason only, and that is profit. Now, there's actually nothing wrong with that. They're, they're entitled to make a profit. The trouble is they, they claim to be neutral. But I've just shown you with my kitchen algorithm, there's no such thing as neutral. Bias is intrinsically built into algorithms, despite people's best intentions. And this can lead to quite serious consequences, because Facebook, for instance, is so popular that a small change in how what you see on Facebook can affect millions of people. And it's got into politics. Now, of course, it would never happen in this country, but I'll use the United States as a great example. And who knows, they've, they've recently had an election where Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were the front runners for the presidency. And uh, it was, it was a, a civil affair and quite well managed. Um, but during the campaign, there was a story which alleged that Hillary Clinton was selling guns to ISIS. And there was another story that Pope Francis had actually endorsed Donald Trump's presidential campaign. And both of these stories went viral on social media. And they polarised public opinion against Hillary Clinton and against Donald Trump. The interesting thing about these news uh, items was that both of them were totally false. And so what happened was that a certain portion of the population got one of these posts and they didn't get the other one. And another portion of the population got the Clinton post and not the one about Donald Trump because of their interests or their political leanings or whatever it was. And then an even huger bunch of the population didn't get to see any of them. Now, if you were part of that, you're sort of thinking, well, thank goodness for that. I don't want rubbish in my newsfeed. But, what, but the deeper significance is that what has happened is that information has gone into what um, people call information silos. So basically, you're, you're a big bin of, that can, collects information. But somebody is choosing what information goes into each of your information bins. And those information bins do not link to one another. So what it does is it increasingly isolates people and people groups so that we get this extremism of there's either you think one way or you think the other way. There is no middle ground because nobody is seeing the middle ground. P people are being polarised into seeing one side of the problem, and it's usually an extreme side of the problem, and other people are seeing the other extreme side of the problem. So is it any wonder when they meet each other, they want to beat the crap out of each other? Because th there is no connection that way. And I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. 
I'm not saying that Facebook is doing this on purpose or that social media is actually out to try and change our opinions. Now, there are some people who can use social media who have actually done that very cleverly, but there is a, a, a polarisation in our society where people aren't dialoguing with each other as much. They're dialoguing with the provider of the information that they believe or want to believe that is true. And Jesus had exactly the same problem. And he didn't even have Facebook. He had a group of Pharisees and Jewish religious leaders who had access to the whole truth of God's revelation in the Old Testament, but were feeding the people different versions of that truth. And people didn't get to see the whole truth. And so... We get a, an example in, in the Gospel of John where a group of these religious people come to Jesus and uh, they've just looked up on social media and discovered a case of adultery. And so they've posted a few pictures on Facebook and got a whole crowd together because the crowd is really interested in a couple of things. A, there's going to be a stoning. And so all their Facebook friends have come together and they've gone and they've bought their... Little bags of gravel and the, the... You haven't seen the life of Brian. Okay. And the other thing is that they've recognised that on their, with their social connections that this guy Jesus is going to be there and he, in the past, has been making them look stupid. So here is a perfect way of getting him involved and making him look stupid. And so a crowd has gathered and they have asked Jesus what he would do in the case of this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, according to what the law says. And does everybody know what Jesus said? He basically didn't answer the question, but said, okay, well, who of you's never sinned? You can throw the first stone. And they slowly went away. And in verse nine, John chapter 8, verse 9, it says, When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. Interestingly, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, now it's interesting, you notice Jesus was alone with the woman in the middle of the crowd. I've often thought that when everybody went away, it was Jesus and the woman in the street alone, nobody around. But they were still being watched by the crowd. But there was a space around them so that they were alone together. And Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. You see, these, Jesus doesn't take an extreme viewpoint, but he actually takes two extreme viewpoints and brings them together. He took, he, first of all, he takes the viewpoint of grace. Because who knows that as, as a church, one of the, the biggest things we're called to extend to people is this thing called grace. Undeserved favor. Why do we, why do we give this to people? Because God has given it to us. We have undeserved favour. God has called us holy. 
We have accepted him as Lord and Saviour. He said, whatever your sins are, because you've taken on my name, you believe on my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you are holy. Sometimes we look around and we think, really? What, what sort of blinkers has God got on? But it's Because it's unmerited. We know our sins. We know our unworthiness. But God says it doesn't matter. It's not because you deserve it that I give you grace. That, that I forgive you, it's because of grace. And so Jesus stands here and he says to this woman, hey, you have my grace. If they don't accuse you, I do not accuse you. No strings attached, no buts, no ifs, no sort of conditions on it. It's, it's grace, pure and simple. But in the next line, he acknowledges the fact that she is living in sin and that needs to change. Because he says, sin no more. Now notice he didn't say it the other way around. He didn't say, naughty, naughty, don't do it again. And if you don't do it again, I forgive you. I won't condemn you like the others either. He doesn't lay down the law and then say, if you're good, you can get in. You know, the kingdom of God's yours. It's just, I need a written note from your parents saying, I will not commit adultery again. And you see, that is salt and light. Because you see, who, who knows salt and light are nothing alike. Salt, especially in the time of Jesus, salt was actually used as a, a form of currency for, Ger- for German soldiers, for, for Roman soldiers. <laughs> Not sure about the German soldiers, <laughs> known as Goths and Visigoths at the time. Um, but it was a form of currency, and so it was quite rare. So people, I mean, a fish and chip shop today would have been raided for its salt. Because there's so, so much salt on our chips. But they were not a, a society used to heavily spiced food. And so salt would be invisible in their cooking. There'd be a small amount. The amount of salt in there would dissolve in whatever they were eating. And so, but the taste, the vibrancy it added to the meals was, was incredible. It gave flavour. But it was subtle and invisible. Light, on the other hand, and Jesus says in, in, in Matthew, he says, light is no good if it's hidden. You can't light a torch and stick it under a basket and say, well, can everybody see? doesn't work. It says the light has to be in your eyes. It has to be visible. It has to be out there so that you can see it. And so they're two opposites. And Jesus says, it's not good enough for us to know the word of God, to know what God wants, to know the law of God, to know the, the right way to act. And he says also, it's not good enough to recognize that we are saved by grace and therefore nothing else matters. You know, Paul says, everything is permissible, but not everything's good for you. And so we have this whole idea that we've got grace on one hand, we've got the law on the other hand. And we've got people, there are people sitting here today who are thinking of that woman, thinking, she knew what she was getting into. She bloody well should have known better. She deserves everything she's getting. Because she disobeyed the law. Why can't Christians behave like they're supposed to behave? Why can't people always do the right thing? Why is the church so full of hypocrites? Where else are they going to go? Because <laughs> everybody's on a journey discovering their relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, you can't expect somebody who's been saved five minutes to understand the whole gospel and to be totally uh, have, a, have a total revelation of their whole sinful life and, and be able to sort through the, the, the mess of their life. It, sometimes, you know, with me, it took me 30 years to get there. It's not going to take five minutes to unravel that crap. And so there are other people on the other side, and I'm not choosing sides here. It's just that it happens that it's good from one side to the other. 
who have received the message of grace, their, their salvation is such that they understand that the grace of God is the most powerful weapon in the universe, that they were saved by grace and that the fact that other people can't seem to understand that annoys them. And they, they're sort of like, forgive everybody. You know, we're all sinners. God forgives everyone, so let's not worry about what the Bible says or anything. We're just under the grace of Jesus Christ, so let's not condemn anybody. Let's just be gracious towards people because, you know, that's, how, that's, that's nice and everybody can have a flower and, and it, we'll all just pray together and everything will be hunky-dory. There's, there's, two side, there's a third side, the middle ground. And this is harmful middle ground. This is people who say, well, who gives us stuff about grace? And who gives a stuff about the law? If God's there, and you know, He knows who I am. If if He if He wants to tell me I've done anything wrong, He will. But I'm not I'm not grace stuff for the birds and you know all these rules and regulations. Who needs them? And there are a lot of Christians who think like that and believe that they're righteous because that's the middle ground. They're not offending anybody with by quoting Bible verses at them, and yet they're not. They're not taking the moral high ground by saying, well, it's the grace of God that's doing it. It's just like, eh, it doesn't matter. And yet in this very verse, God actually asks us to take the middle ground. But not by forgetting the right or the left, but by combining them. We are actually called, as, as Jesus did right here, to show unfathomable grace in people's lives. But also remind them that we have a God whose sacrifice for us burdens us with a way of behaving. And we are called to do that without removing grace. You thought being a Christian was easy, didn't you? <laughs> so, you see, grace, salt and light, is not a passive thing to bring them together. Because we're salt and light. Remember I said he didn't say we were salt or light. You can't pick one or the other. We have to be both. We have to bring flavor to people's lives. But we need to bring the light of God's vision, if you like, onto their lives as well. And so it's not a passive middle ground. It's not walking the middle ground because it's too hard on this side and it's too rough on this side and let's just stick to the middle because then we don't have to make a decision. It's actually forcing the extreme left and the extreme right, and I'm not using those in a political way, but just ways of thinking, into the middle and forcing them to meet each other and communicate. That's what we're actually called to do. And that, that requires effort. We can't be passive Christians. We can't look at people and, and just leave them to their own devices. We're actually called to get into their lives and show them the light, provide them with salt, and guide them on that journey. It's actually a high calling that we've been brought to do. But the trouble is if we rely on algorithms to run our life, they drag that apart. If we let the world dictate how we act, we're going to become salt or light. And the trouble is a lot of the world sees us as one or the other right now. Because they're getting information in little silos about particular issues, social, political, moral, family, all of those sort of things. And they cannot understand why these people over here who they think are getting the same information silos don't know what they're talking about. It's because mathematics, algorithms. Now, there's nothing intrinsically evil. We're not going to have a prayer against algorithms 
um, at the next prayer meeting. But I believe that we should, we should be people who are aware of how the world is manipulating our social structure. It's not always bad, don't get me wrong. It can be very helpful. But it's, not a, it's a question of not blindly accepting what the world feeds us, but filtering it through the eyes of Christ. Filtering it in a way so that we can be salt and we can be light, because that's what we've been called to do. Can I ask you to stand and pray with me? Actually, I want you to, and it might not be everybody here, but I believe that God always provides opportunities for a fresh start. And there are often people in our lives that we struggle to get through in terms of preaching the gospel to them because at some point in our lives they've either seen us as extreme one way or extreme the other way and we've offended them or, or made it hard for us to have a conversation. So I want to pray, if, if that's you here this morning, I want you to think of that person right now. And I want to pray for the chance of new beginnings. God is a God of new beginnings. And so Lord, we pray where we have offended people, or where we have let people believe or understand the wrong thing through our action or inaction, I pray, Lord, that you soften their heart, that you bring about circumstance where we can revisit Jesus Christ with them, without offence, without making them back off, without making them feel condemned or convicted, but to actually show them the grace and mercy that we were shown in Jesus' name. Also, I just want to pray for a couple of people. Ansel, <laughs> is Anna there with you or is she? Uh, she it's all right. You can take it for both of you. Oh, I was just praying about you guys this week. And the, the, the thing that keeps coming to my mind is change. You're looking for change in your life. You're looking for something different. You're looking for a, a change in circumstances, a change in uh, opportunities, all sorts of change. But I, while I was praying, I, I really got this feeling to say that God says the change has already happened in here. You need to go home and in your prayer time, you need to start thanking God that change is already in your life. What you're looking for has already happened. It just hasn't manifested yet. The change is going to actually bring about revelation that you've never had before and it's actually going to cause you to step out and do something you never have before. And that's not just that you can tell Anna the same thing. It's not just for you. that she's going to, And it's going to be something for God. I don't know what it is. God wouldn't reveal that. But he has got something planned for you that involves ministering to people, that involves speaking into people's lives and changing people. Because the change has already happened in you. It's happened in your heart. It's going to move to your head. You're going to get a light, one of those light bulb revelations in a moment of prayer, in your own private prayer. And you're going to realize that the change that God has done in you is not just for you, but for other people as well. And you're going to minister in that. Lord, I thank you right now that you fill this great couple with your Holy Spirit. I give you thanks for their faithfulness. And I give you thanks for the revelation you're bringing into their life. Bless them. Encourage them. 
feed them, love them, build them up, Lord. In Jesus' name. Natalie Skinner. Can I get you just to come out the front here? Now, this is probably a bit weird. Have you ever done this before? <laughs> no. no. Now, what I'm about to say is not a prediction of your future, nor is it laid down in law that what I say is not an instruction in that sense. But I believe that it's a picture of your future that God has for you. And I know Dylan's been very excited about this ever since I spoke to him. Um, but yours is quite different. Dylan I, I talked about as a rock um, and the things that come against him aren't going to affect him but he, you know rock doesn't move a lot um, you know, he, he's pretty laid back um, but the vision I've got for you is, is actually very different God is going to place a burden on your heart and that burden is going to be so strong in you that you're not going to be able to keep quiet I actually see you up on a stage like this actually speaking to people with passion and conviction and enthusiasm in your heart about what God has placed on your life, that you are not going to be able to keep it quiet. You are actually going to become somebody who is forthright, bold and loud. Now, I, I don't know whether you can see that now. I, I don't really know you well enough, but I, I, I believe that God's going to put that not just the burden in your heart, but he's actually going to put the, the capacity for you to step up it's not, it's not necessarily tomorrow, but you, need, you, you just need to pray about that and ask God what it is because I believe it's going to be very powerful. So, Lord, I just pray. Fill her with your spirit. Bring revelation. Bring joy. Bring passion for you, for the person, for the love of Jesus Christ and Natalie's life. Thank you, Lord. She will bless hundreds of thousands because of what you've placed in her heart in Jesus name Amen Mitch <coughs> there's a strength inside of you Mitch that God has placed in you inside there and there's a fear inside of you that he hasn't and that strength is bound until that fear can be released and the fear comes from the world and I believe God's saying to you you need to have a daily mantra you need to say to yourself he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world I am made for better things than this world tells me. I have a bigger capacity than this world is letting me have at the moment. I have a larger heart, a bigger spirit. I am built for bigger things. And right now I speak to that strength. I say, Lord, build and grow that strength. Let it burst the chains binding it. Lord, your word is a two-edged sword. I believe that the word of God is the key for you, Mitch, to read his word, to find out how to use that strength, to find out how to 
unshackle that strength from the fear inside of you and banish it for good. Because it won't hold you. It doesn't have ownership over you. It's smaller, much, much smaller than what God has given you. And he says, rise up. Rise up, mighty man of God. The words coming out of your mouth are going to change. You are going to be a spokesman for the word of God. Holy God, fill him with your spirit. Encourage, protect. Make him bold. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. The interesting thing about salt and light, it's a bit like one of those paradoxes that people talk about. It's very hard to have one and the other in the same room. But that's actually what we're called to do. But we can't do it on our own. It is actually impossible to do without the power of Jesus Christ. And so I believe that if we want to do that, if we want to be a voice in the wilderness, a voice of reason in times of unrest, then we need to make sure that we've got Jesus before we start trying to do any of that. And so if you're here this morning, if you've never invited Jesus into your heart, you've never proclaimed him as your Lord and Saviour, you've never said, I need your strength so that my life can be complete. Or if you've done that, but you realise that you've, you've let that relationship go, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to take on or renew that relationship. The first step in doing that is just to make a declaration that you are prepared to put Jesus first, that he is your Lord and Saviour, and that you're prepared to turn your life around and follow him. And if you're prepared to take this step this morning, I'd love to pray with you and help you take that. So can I ask everybody here just to close their eyes for a moment? And if that's you, you've never given your heart to Jesus or you've given it in the past, but you know that you've wandered from that relationship. I'd love to pray a prayer with you. If you put your hand up right now so that I can see it while nobody's looking around, we can pray together to invite Jesus into your life, to take a new road in life. Okay, can everybody open their eyes? I want us to pray together. Because I believe salvation is actually one of the keystones of Jesus' ministry. He came and died so that people would know him. So I want us to pray this morning. I want us to pray for the, the friends you have that don't know Jesus. I want us to pray for the people at, at work that you, you're talking to or, or encouraging in their faith so that we can actually Help them along that road to knowing Jesus. So Lord, right now I pray that everybody here under the sound of my voice, every friend, every family member, every colleague, work colleague, school friend, whatever it is that they're talking to, Lord, I pray for an opportunity to preach the gospel of good news to them. I pray for an opportunity to perhaps bring your healing power, to, ask, to bring comfort, 
to bring love into people's lives through your name. And Lord, I pray that people will be moved towards you, that they will make a decision to put you number one in their lives. Let us be the conduit for that. In Jesus' name, amen.